This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. Hey there, HRN listeners. This is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears. I know that news about COVID-19 and the coronavirus has made a lot of people nervous about getting sick. This collective unease has already had a big impact on our restaurant and food communities, especially in New York's Chinatowns. We hope that now more than ever, our listeners will join us in supporting restaurants and the hospitality industry at large. Many of the restaurants we love are small, independent businesses. That means that even one or two bad weeks can put them in jeopardy of cutting staff, limiting hours, or even having to close for good. As long as we're still able, we should go out to eat and support our favorite restaurants. I think it's also great to remember that hospitality professionals are really good at hygiene and food safety practices. Long before there were guides all over the news about how to properly wash your hands, they were already experts at hygiene. Guests' health is tantamount to successful hospitality in any restaurant. And even if you don't want to go out, you can still support restaurants by ordering delivery, buying gift cards, and giving them some extra love on social media. What better way to handle a crisis than by supporting those in our own community? If we don't support them now, they might not be there when this crisis is over. Join HRN in supporting restaurants during this time, especially our friends in Chinatowns around the country. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. If you're just tuning in for the first time, all the previous episodes can be found in the archives at heritageradionetwork.org. I'm thankful for listeners like you, and I'd love it if you'd leave me a review wherever you find this podcast. I'd love it if you'd also check out my new podcast, Time for Lunch. It's a new show for kids all about food, fun, and flavor. Today's theme a long two weeks. Two weeks ago, I was in Charleston, South Carolina with the HRN team for the Wine and Food Fest. Events all over the country were being canceled in an effort to keep people from traveling and stem the spread of what is now a global pandemic. On the flights to and from Charleston, people all around me were using disinfecting wipes on the tray tables, seatbelts, and other surfaces. It was a little surreal, but felt like this was something we can get through and protect ourselves. I think most people wouldn't get on a plane today unless there was a very good reason like you were trying to get home, or to help a loved one. My, how things have changed in the last 14 days. That's how long they estimate the incubation period to be for COVID-19. So if I haven't come down with it today, then I probably didn't contract it in Charleston or on my flight back. Of course, I could also be one of the many that seem to be asymptomatic and still be a carrier of the virus. At the festival, there was a lot of speculation about what the restaurant and associated industries would be facing in the coming weeks and months. People were talking about how long they could last if they had to close, mostly due to lack of business. I don't think many people were thinking that they would be forced to do takeout and delivery only to a population that was clearing out store shelves and mostly cooking at home. At the time of this recording, my feed is full of postings about GoFundMe or similar funds to help hospitality workers at restaurants and bars who've been laid off, as the owners and leaders of those companies have had to make what I know are horrible calls and announcements. By some estimates, we may lose 75% of our independent restaurants in this country due to many factors over the next 12 to 18 months. This doesn't scratch the surface of the human and emotional toll this virus and the subsequent turmoil in the economy will take. I've been ordering takeout from restaurants when I can, but with the economic uncertainty and my well-stocked pantry, I have to say it was pretty well-stocked before all this, I'm mostly staying home as most of us are. I think it's worth remembering the staff of these establishments, and I would encourage anyone who has the means to donate to one of these funds when you can. Maybe the price of a drink, or at least the tips you would have left. When you open that bottle of wine tonight, why not find a place you used to like to frequent and contribute a few dollars to the staff? This is what I'm going to try to do. 
And when the dust settles and the number of cases is contained, we can all get back to breaking bread together in person. When I was in Charleston, I had a chance to sit down with Quentin Middleton. He's a knife maker, preacher, father, and a wonderful human, not necessarily in that order. I hope you like the interview. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network on Tour. I'm Harry Rosenblum from Feast Your Ears. Today we're broadcasting live from Charleston Wine and Food. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible and to Charleston Wine and Food Festival for having us here for the fifth year in a row. I'm very pleased to get a chance to sit down uh, and offer a little break to my friend Quentin Middleton, who is a knife maker. Uh, Middleton Made Knives is his company. If you are a reader of the Wall Street Journal, you would have seen a very nice piece this morning uh, that spoke quite a bit about him and his craft. That's correct. Uh, thanks so much, Quinn, for coming to sit down with me. I know you've been on your feet the past couple of days. You're slinging your product over here in the in the Artisan Village. Yes, thank you so much. Oh, Lord, man, I need to sit down, man. <laughs> thank um, you. So let's go right back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I understand it, you made your first blade uh, when you were about seven years old. Yes, it was more of an ice pick than a knife. <laughs> I mean, everybody starts somewhere. <laughs> yeah. So what it was, is I took a piece of shower rod and a sharp piece of steel, and I kind of hammered it together. And my dad saw that I made a shank, and he's like, give me this, boy, you're going to poke your eye out. And, and, and he threw it on top of the china cabinet. <laughs> and actually, I'm sorry, but um, that same shank that I made when I was seven, um, he, my dad passed away in 2007, and... Maybe three years ago, I went on top of my grandparents' china cabinet, and it was still there. And I, wow. Wow. And truthfully, that was the last thing I know that my dad touched. And like, so I'm, I'm cherishing that. Oh, wow. That is, yeah. That's really, that's super cool. That's Thank amazing. Um, so from there, mm-hmm. obviously now the knives you make are not shanks made out of shower rods. <laughs> yes. It's uh, not shanks anymore. No. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about your process. So, I mean, you are part of a growing number of artisan knife makers who mm-hmm. make knives pretty much completely by hand, yeah. um, not only here in the United States, all over the world, but really I think there's been a huge resurgence here in the United States of people working with their hands, not just making knives, but you're a knife maker. Yeah, definitely. Um, I've seen, I've been making knives for 17 years, and my company's been open 10, so I'm not the old, I'm not the new kid on the block anymore. I'm the old guy. Right. <laughs> and I get just about a, a email every other week saying, can you teach me? Can you teach me? I, I get a lot of newbies coming up now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that social media has really affected that. Um, and, and obviously there's shows like Forge and Fire oh, and, mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. But, you know, it's exciting, right? I mean, there is something visceral mm-hmm. uh, about watching a knife get made or watching a piece of hot steel. Mm-hmm. I visited the Smithy uh, Cast Iron Cookware uh, factory uh, yes. on Thursday, and they're making actually a forged steel pan. Yes. And I got to watch that process, and it's very similar. I mean, mm-hmm. they're taking a piece of steel and they're putting it in a forge. They're getting it super hot. Mm -hmm. They're putting it into a trip hammer, you know, and they're really drawing out that blade. Um, The other thing about it is it takes a long time, right? I mean, you're not putting out a thousand knives a week. I'm not. I wish I could. (laughs) But but, uh, it's like the knives that I make, every last one of them have a soul or is a part of me in each and every knife I make. And it's really personal. So everybody that has a knife for me, I'm in a lot of kitchens. Yeah. Um, are there some knives that are are like more special to you than others? Like, are there chefs that have knives that you made that either was a design choice or something like that that you know they have them and it like 
Actually, there is one knife that I know for sure that's really special to me. It was a throwaway. And I messed up on it. I threw it away maybe four years ago. And I picked it up and I saw it in my scrap bin. I said, wow, I can make something else out of that. And I made it and I sold it for maybe $1,500. And that was that would be the one that's really special to me because it was a throwaway. And, and it's kind of like in life, people that you think that are castaways, they can maybe later on, they could be something that you, you would never think of. That's really awesome. So it was just something that you realized eventually. Yes. It took a while to kind of get it, make it into something yeah, else. Yeah, because really truthfully great. at the time, my skill level wasn't uh, to where it is now because we go through a journey. So if I took you, think about your ABCs. So if I, if you were at F right now, if I take you from F and put you at X, can you sustain X with an F knowledge? You can't. So you have to go through the process. Right. So I had to go through the process of getting to where I am now. And how long does it take you to make a knife? I mean, I know obviously it's different depending on what kind of steel you're working with, yes. what size it is, what kind of handle material. But take me through the process of like making a chef's knife. Like, so I answer that in two ways. So uh, A is 17 years. <laughs> um, and B is you have, I can make a knife. If I'm making one exact knife, is six hours hands-on time and two hours hands-off. And the two hours is the, the heat treating and tempering of the knife. So basically, if I'm, I pick the steel that I want to use and I already have the design in my head what I want to make, so I would forge out the steel to the width of it. And after I get the width that I need, I would grind the, param the perimeter of the knife to get to the shape. Then after I do that, I heat treat it to get it hard, temper it, to draw the, um, the hardness out, and then I would grind the bevels. So that would go through different grits from 50 grit to 600 grit. Then I would tape it up, put the handles on, and shape the handles to what I think um, will be comfortable for the end user. Got it. And then, so you're spending your time making all the knives. Yes. Do you have anybody working with you in the yes. shop? I have two apprentices that's, um, that I'm teaching and helping me produce my not to say production line, but production line. Yeah. Um, because everybody can't afford um, a $400 or a $1,200 knife. So I'm producing something that's called the Echo line. So it echoes what I I currently make. So it's a knife that in the price range of $200. And every line cook can't, can't afford a $500 knife. So right. I want to put it in that price range where it's close to Shun and Wustoff and Zwilling and everything like that. And plus, it's handmade by me and my, my apprentices. Right. Like, so you're still getting something handmade, but it's just not by me. And then you're sharing that knowledge and you're employing people. It's not right. just you working by yourself anymore. Yeah, it's like I learned that if I get sick, production stops. Right. And if I'm just making the knife, my legacy won't go past me. So if I wanted to create something and brief life back into the American dream, I have to bring people aboard and I have to like inspire somebody to say like, okay, we can do this together. So that's what I, I really believe in and that's what I'm pushing. So at an event like this, like at Charleston Wine and Food here, you're, you've got your table set up, people can view 60, 70 of your knives. Mm -hmm. um, how many knives will you sell in three days at this festival? Um, so it took me two months to get about 70 knives made and two thirds of it's gone. Wow, and yeah. we're we're on day two, two, so you'll basically have sold everything by the end of the day tomorrow. 
Pretty much, yes. Wow. Uh, and then you had a great coverage this morning. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal people should check out about, uh, you know, the headline, of course, the way headlines are, says $24,000 knife. And they're yeah. talking about Bob Kramer, Kramer who's like yeah. the granddaddy of modern American bladesmithing, mm -hmm. uh, and that one of his knives, which he auctioned off, and he does this from time to time, he auctions them off, usually for charity, I think. Yeah, charity, yes. Um, went for $24,000. Mm -hmm. um, but you're you're mentioned heavily in the article yes. uh, as another you know, well-respected knife maker. Uh, do you also have knives up for sale on your website? Yes, I do have knives on, on, on my website, but they are <laughs> killing me right now. <laughs> so, But since I'm on the Wall Street Journal, I have to get my rich voice. Well, yes, <laughs> on the Wall Street Journal. They're tearing up my inventory right now. <laughs> well, yeah, like they, they're, they're killing me right now. I'm selling knives here and on my website. And I'm, I'm telling my apprentices that, that are with me here, I say, I hope I got enough inventory. I hope I got enough. So I'm checking and checking right. while I'm selling knives here. And it's, it's a whirlwind right now. And they mentioned in the article, they talk about a couple of other knife makers. And I've talked to other knife makers that have this exact same problem. I yeah. mean, Bob Kramer had this problem when he first got an so, article mm -hmm. written about him that he got enough orders for like three, three years, years and he yeah. stopped taking orders, mm -hmm. right? Are you worried that that might happen? Is it a good problem to have? Is it? It's like, the, the thing about the thing about that, it's, uh, it's pros and cons. So like, it can be a great thing because I have the money now, but that money may not last for three years. So for me, I try to make something where I, I know I can finish it within the next few months. Right. Then it's not, it's not hindering me too much because an artist can get, can get trapped in perfection. Like, so when they're trying to perfect everything, it's like, oh, it has to be this and it has to be that. And that can suck them in for three years. And so I had to teach myself to get out of that, to, but still have the, the, the quality and the, uh, the professionalism in it. But I have to learn, okay, I have to let it go. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. So I have to ask, do you ever get bored? With just like cranking out knives, like how do you keep it interesting? Is it working with new shapes, new steel, new material? Um, truthfully, um, to be fully candid, um, maybe three years ago I wanted to quit. Like because it was just, I was tired, I was burned out, and I'm making the same thing over and over and over and over again. And I just got tired. And I, I looked at my children, and they they were the one that kind of breathed life back into it because I'm doing it for them. I'm building military-made cuisine, I mean military-made knives, for them to something that they can have something tangible that they can say like okay my dad was the grunt man for this and now we need to take it to the next level 
So they were the one like, okay, daddy, get to work. <laughs> <laughs> How old are your kids? My kids, uh, Michael and Layla. Uh, Layla's eight and Michael is nine. Got it. Do they have knives of their own that you've made for them? Well. <laughs> <laughs> or have they made knives they, in the shop they, with like, you? They're trying to. Like, yeah. so, but they're... <laughs> The thing about my 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 son, he's 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 into music, and he and we try not to, like, oh no, don't do this or don't do that. We we're really pushing them, and my my daughter, she's big into art, like she likes to draw and paint. So uh, we really push them to um, expand on their creativity. So we're not really trying to cover anything up. Like, I'm not telling her, you could be a knife maker. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's a, an exhibit coming up in New York in Harlem um, mm-hmm. called African American Making the Nation's Table. It's being put on by the Museum of Food and Drink. Yes. Uh, it is going to have the famous ebony test kitchen mm-hmm. reinstalled there. And as I understand it, your knives, hopefully, if we'll you be have there. some inventory, will yeah. be available yeah. there. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that's super exciting, right? I mean, I at this too. iconic... African-American uh, kitchen. Mm-hmm. It was such a big part of that magazine. Yes. I mean, and then to have your product displayed there, how does, mm-hmm. that, how does that feel? Wow. It's, to hear you see it like that, man, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's really cool because, like, for artisans, like, we get trapped in our own space because we really don't hear the accolades much because we're in our shop and we're, we really don't pay attention to it much. And to hear you say it, like, that, like wow, I'm just a guy from a small town. <laughs> Like, like you sure you want me? <laughs> like that—that's—that's that's how I feel sometimes. But I smile and nod. Like, uh, yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I you know I have to say, and, and we talked about this a little bit before the before we started recording. You know, looking around at this food and wine festival, it's awesome, right? There's yes. thousands of people here. Mm-hmm. Everybody's here because they're interested in food, they're interested in beverage, they're interested in what you're making. They're yes. looking at the other artisans who are selling things over there. Um, I don't see a lot of African American faces. Yes. It's a pretty white crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, how is it for you being an African-American in this industry related to food, which, you know, I mean, obviously there are accolades being paid to African-American chefs, yes. but it's still very white dominated. It very is. Um, like when I started, it was very hard for me to get in at first um, to because they don't know who I, who I am or what I do. And it's just that, I don't know, it's, I hate to say it like this, racism, like, but it's, it's in certain people's hearts and it's right. there, it's, it's, it's there. And like, you may not think of it, but it, it just happens because it's, it's there. And it's just something that has to be weeded out over time. Right. Like you can't teach your children to say like, oh, um, a black person does this. And like, it's a stereotype. Like they act like this. It shouldn't be that way. Because yeah. as a, for, for me as a knife maker, I'm, there's very few black knife makers. So for me, it's like, like you're a black knife maker. Like, that's very rare. Why, why, why does it have to be that? Right. Like, even though I'm black and I'm doing what I, what I love. I mean, it, knife making is pretty rare in and of itself. It is. Right? I mean, <laughs> it it's is. not, you know. <laughs> yeah. But it, 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 I do get that thing like, ooh, you're a black guy, like, making knives. That's weird. You're a weird guy. Like, <laughs> I can see they're not saying that, but I can see it yeah, in their yeah, eyes. Yeah. And for a long time, it bothered me. But I learned that if if I make a great product, it speaks for itself. Yeah. Like even though if I, if someone that's uh, don't like it for the for the for my skin tone, they love my knife. 
No. Like, so you, you're paying for my children to go to college. So I'm just going <laughs> to smile and nod. All right. Well, you may not like me, but. So what shape, uh, what knife shape do you use at home in the kitchen? Um, I use all kinds. So my kitchen is the test kitchen. Right. So I, I test a lot of different shapes and designs. So <laughs> my wife hates when I will bring a new knife in. She oh, I love it. I love it. And then the next few days it's gone because I want to change something. <laughs> like, where's my knife? Where's my knife? I'm sorry I grind it up and change the design. <laughs> like so she hates that, but I have like a wall full of knives in my kitchen. Yeah, I, I imagine so. And then do you also keep uh, and collect knives by other makers? Actually I don't. Huh. Like I admire other people's knives, sure. um, but I don't collect them. I, I look at um look at them on Instagram and sometimes I hold um hold their knives, but I don't invest in it too much yeah. because I'm a tunnel vision because sometimes I can get distracted by other things sure. because I can get influenced by someone else's design and they can say like, oh, you copied, you copied me or you, you and right. you, you took this from me. So I don't want that. I'm tunnel vision. And if I get inspired by something like uh, trees or a painting or something like that, then I can say I got inspired from this. I got inspired from that. Then I can make something. So that's something for me, I guess. <laughs> So you also have a uh, pretty, I would imagine, serious spiritual side? Yes, I do. Yes. You're also a preacher? I am a preacher. Yes, I am. Tell me about <laughs> I'm, that. I'm a weird preacher. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a preacher that make knives. <laughs> do you have, I mean, do you have a congregation that you um, So what is that? Like, my bishop is the pastor of the church, and so I'm under him. Got it. So um, he, he wants me back Sunday, but I'm going to be here. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, how does the... How does the spiritualism and the knives, like, is there a connection there yes. to when you're working, to when you're working with the actually, steel? Actually, my knife making is, is my ministry, a part of my ministry, because you have people that may not believe in Christ, may not believe in Jesus Christ, and, that, and that's not a problem. So, for example, if I sell a knife to a chef and they're preparing food for thousands of people, I'm believing that I'm blessing that knife, I'm praying over it while I'm working, and someone that may not be a believer have cancer or they be, may be sick. So that knife that the chef cut the food with, I'm believing that that, bless, that blessing transferred to the food sure. so where they could be healed, even if they don't believe in Christ, but I do. I'm sharing, I'm sharing Christ's love sure. like, to everybody. So that's part of my ministry is just love. That's awesome. And I mean, it's like the loaves and fishes story, right? I mean, yeah. It's like the exactly. same thing. You are contributing to the ability of that feeding of people. Exactly. Yeah, I love it. Amen to that. So, you know, I, I would feel remiss if I also didn't point out that we are sitting here at this wine and food festival uh, in Charleston under a statue of John Calhoun. <laughs> and for those who are listening, uh, you know, as someone who, uh, you know, studied a lot of history mm -hmm. uh, and paid close attention, I mean, in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of press yeah. about places pulling down statues of Confederate leaders, mm -hmm. of secessionists, of slave owners, that kind of thing. Yes. I mean, he is like the architect of the secession. Exactly. Um, and was a slave owner and mm -hmm. really, you know, was very much a part of that. Um you know, I, I want to bring it up. I'm, you know, what do you think about that, about the fact that we're doing it here? I mean, I don't, I'm not, I, you know, I personally feel that we shouldn't deny the history, but yeah. I also feel like people should know the history. Yeah, you shouldn't deny the history. You should learn from your history. Um, but what I think is funny, you got the Confederate uh, John Calhoun and you got St. Uh, Francis Mary right across the street. Like, so they're battling each other. So, right. <laughs> and uh, I think that's funny. Um, but, um, 
you should you should learn from history. You should never um, uh, cancel out history or, or what it is. Like learn from it and what can we take from it. So even though this person may uh, had his slaves and everything like that, but um, that's not that's not taken away from what I'm doing. Sure, absolutely. And like it, it, it truthfully inspired me to do better because and that person I cite may think I'm I'm the lowest of a lowest to a worm. But I'm showing them that I am making knives in my backyard. Right. I am I'm I'm on the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. <laughs> and like where you think that I'm worth I'm worthless, I'm succeeding. Right. Right. Um, so what does you know, when I see you here next year, if I don't mm-hmm. see you before, like what does that look like? You know, like are there new knife shapes in the works? Are there new materials you wanna be working with? Yeah, so what's in the works now is the folding chef knife. Folding chef, chef knife. Yes. It's a six inch Sentaku. And what it is is you purchase a knife from me for five hundred dollars and you wanna go outside and barbecue or grill, you don't want to take that five hundred dollar knife outside. Sure. And so you don't want to drop it on the rocks next to your grill. Correct correct. So this 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 knife is basically a traveling knife and it it'll fold up, pack up, and you can go camping, you can uh, for chefs that love to travel that, that don't want to take their knife rule, they'll have that and stick it in their knife. Uh, uh, sorry, take the knife and put it in their pocket. And like when I've been in um, Brooklyn riding on the sub and I've seen uh, chefs with their knife rules and they're looking like, oh, damn, I got knives in here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like so some, somebody that can feel safe and I got something that, that can use all day long and then put it right back in my pocket and, and go. So hopefully that will be out and running by mid mid this year cool awesome well thank you so much quentin for sitting down to talk with me me. people should check out uh they can follow you on instagram at middleton made knives yes uh and then what and is that also the website yes middletonmadeknives.com awesome and uh you should go there like right now or if you're in charleston you should come over to the table because i think inventory is going to be very low if i'm not sold out right now Thanks for listening to Feast Your Ears today. You can find out more about Quentin and his knives at middletonmadeknives.com, and you can follow him on Instagram at middletonmadeknives. You can find Feast Your Ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please reach out to me if you have any questions. You can find me via email, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on Instagram at thefoodballer. Talk to you next week. Feast Your Ears is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.